All right, Genesis chapter 50. It's uh, page 25, if you got one of the white or blue Bibles that we handed you. And um, just so you know, we're ending Genesis today. We've been in Genesis for uh, almost exactly 18 months. Um, So we started Genesis chapter 1, went all the way through the book today. We are going to finish it up today. It's going to be great. And then we're going to start a series on stuff Jesus said. And because uh, we haven't talked about Jesus directly in a while, 18 months to be exact. And so we're going to do um, a series on the parables of Jesus. And that's going to take us through our birthday, which is the end of January. So uh, that'll be our four-year birthday as a church. Uh, and then we're going to start a new series after that. So just so you know what's coming up, um, that's what we're doing. So it's been a great journey through the book of Genesis. I have loved it. Uh, hopefully you've been with us the whole time. If not... Uh, the studies are online. Uh, but what we saw as we began the book of Genesis was kind of God laying the foundations uh, for humanity, right? We saw creation. We saw him making the universe. We saw all these things laid. Then we kind of saw the pinnacle of creation was humanity, uh, man and woman created. And what we saw as God was creating, if you remember back, over a year ago, 18 months or so ago, was what we talked about over and over every single week was that God was doing things in a way that revealed something about himself. So he wasn't doing anything on accident. He was doing things the way he was doing them on purpose, to teach us something about himself. And that's the first step of discipleship, right? We talk about our mission as a church is to help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. That's the first step is to know God. And so realizing that that was God's first step, too. He was creating in a way that would help humanity know him. And so we saw over and over that he created things in the way that he created him them or did things in the way that he did them so that you would know something about him. And you may not have realized it, but it will become very apparent as we finish our study today. But God never stopped doing that. God continued on and continues on, even today, doing things in a way that teaches you about him. God does the things that he does in the way that he does them so that you would know something about him. And so as we worked our way through the book of Genesis, uh, God promised to send a savior. We've talked about this in Genesis chapter 3. Then we fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, and he picks a family, uh, a guy named Abraham, He says, Abraham, your family is going to bring forth the Savior. You're going to live in the promised land. You're going to be a mighty nation. You're going to be a light to all the peoples of the world. Uh, Then Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And from chapter 27 of the book of Genesis to the end of the book, Genesis chapter 50, it's entirely about Jacob and his family. So Jacob has 12 sons, and we are following around Jacob and his 12 sons for 23 chapters. So that's almost half the book, right? So that should pique your attention, at least at the very beginning. Go, oh, why did God spend 23 chapters on this man and his family? Like, What was going on that was so special about this man and his 12 sons that it took us 23 chapters worth of time to understand the picture that God was trying to communicate? So we're going to do... Genesis chapter 50 today. We're going to talk about what it says, and then we're going to circle back around and say, why was that such a big deal? Why did we need to spend 23 chapters, almost half the book, talking about this family to get what God wanted to teach us? So that's what we're going to do. That's the plan. 
if you remember, Genesis chapter 50, we pick it up in verse 1, uh, but we're kind of jumping in the middle of a story here. In Genesis 49, Jacob actually breathed his last breath. Right? So he had 12 sons. He grew very old, 137 years old. His last words to them were prophecies about each of the 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it says he breathed his last and pulled his feet up into his bed, which I don't know what that means. It's some Jewish like word picture that he's done. It's over, right? Kick the can, the bucket, whatever. And he's done. And Jacob uh, dies and his favorite son, Joseph, is in the room apparently when this happens. And that's where we pick it up. Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. It says, Then Joseph fell on his father, so that's Jacob's face, and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. And 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak to the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb. I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please go up, let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made your swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there he went up with both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizram, that is, beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So we have the account of Jacob's burial here. First, Jacob dies and he is embalmed by the Egyptians, right? This is probably the mummy process you're all familiar with. This is tied to uh, the nation of Egypt. He probably is made into a mummy, kind of that thing. And then after 70 days of weeping, which is the Egyptian custom, Joseph, who was, if you remember, second in command in the nation of Egypt, says, hey, we got to go bury dad back in the land of Canaan, back in the promised land that God said he was going to uh, eventually give to our family to bring forth the Savior of the world. And so he goes and asks Pharaoh if he can go bury his father. And Pharaoh says, not only can you go, but take my horses, take my chariots, and take all the important officials of Egypt. This is like a national holiday. And so they go. And this huge caravan of people head off. Now it's probably about a week, uh, a two-week journey one way. And so they're traveling for two weeks, a couple thousand miles from Egypt up to kind of present-day Israel, just south of Jerusalem area that we would know today. Uh, They get there, and it says they mourn for an entire week. So they just spend the time weeping and remembering and mourning and and, and kind of having a 
an event to remember the life of Jacob. And then after that week, they actually bury him in the cave that he owned, which we know Abraham was buried there. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was buried there. Isaac was buried there. Isaac's wife, Rachel, was buried there. And then Jacob's very first wife, Leah, had also been buried there. So now the patriarchs, all three of them, are buried in this cave. And it says, as they are going through this whole process, the inhabitants of the land are watching and marveling. They're watching and going, whoa, this is a big deal. This is, this is an important person. This is, the, the Egyptians are like making a big deal of this. There's a ton of them. There's a bunch of weeping. They've been here for a week crying. And like, this is a huge deal. And this is, this is a pretty normal thing to understand, right? If you watch a huge procession taking place, you don't even have to know who the person was. You can assume that they were probably a really big deal that they were very important or significant or that this was a deep loss for the, the country or the people or whatever. It kind of reminds me when Megan and I visited uh, Istanbul, Turkey. Um, I don't know, it was like 10 years ago. Anyway, we ended up in Istanbul because Istanbul is in, uh, when your Bible talks about Asia, it's talking about that region. So there's some cool biblical sites like Ephesus and uh, in the book of Revelation, the church of Izmir, well, the church of... Um, I don't remember now. I'm just your pastor. I should know these things. Whatever. So anyway, uh, is in Izmir, Turkey. And so anyway, we had, we had gone to Istanbul. We flew in and out of there. And while we were there, they were like, hey, you should see some of the sites. We were at the tour group. And so they went to take us to this church called the Hagia Sophia, which Hagia Sophia in Koine Greek means uh, holy wisdom. And it was one of the oldest Christian churches that had ever been built. It was built in like the 500, 500s uh, AD. And most Christian churches from that period, uh, have been torn down because the Middle East, as you know, has been back and forth between uh, Christian control and Muslim control, and there's like been crusades and back and forth all the time. So when the Muslims conquered an area, they usually just decimated all the Christian churches, and then when the crusades came and conquered an area, they usually knocked down all the mosques, and, and so it just went back and forth. So you don't have very many of these churches that survived, and the Hagia Sophia survived only because when the Muslim invaders came and conquered Istanbul, they needed a place to worship, and their, their holy day was Friday, and so this is what the tour guide told us. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't know. He told us this story. So uh, they conquered it on a Wednesday, and they needed a place to worship on Friday, and so instead of tear down this giant church, they actually just covered up all the Christian art and things like that, and they had mosque in there that Friday. And the Hagia Sophia is actually, for over a thousand years, it was the world's largest indoor space. So this thing is massive. I mean, it's just incredible. And the idea that it was built so long ago and it survived. So the Muslims actually just used it for, as a mosque. Uh, and they built the minarets outside. And even though it was originally a Christian church, they used it. They're like, this is great. This is massive. Why rebuild a huge one like this? We'll just use it. So they used it. And then after a while, <clears throat> they said, you know what? We should have our own thing. So they built right next to it this giant mosque that's also famous, named the Blue Mosque, even though it's like a 1,000 years newer than the Hagia Sophia. So anyway, the whole thing is like this big park now uh, in downtown Istanbul. So we were going to visit the Hagia Sophia. And on the way, our tour guide, who is Turkish and Muslim, he's like, hey, we're going to go visit the Blue Mosque, too. And I was like, I don't know if I want to see the Blue Mosque. He's like, no, the architecture is incredible. It's beautiful. You'll love to see it. And I was like, yeah, but it's a mosque. And he's like, no, no, don't worry about it. It's like a museum now. Nobody's ever there. And I was like, oh, OK, it's like a museum. It'll be great. So we show up on the morning of, 
And I don't know why we did this, but we ended up parking on the Blue Mosque side. And uh, the, guy, the tour guide says, hey, so good news and bad news. Uh, somebody super famous and important in Turkey died. Uh, and so they have declared a national day of mourning, and they have opened the Blue Mosque up as a memorial service uh, for everybody in Turkey. And so what was going to be like a museum trip for us ended up being thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Muslim worshipers like coming to the Blue Mosque to worship and mourn this guy who had died. And so we had already, like Turkey was the weirdest place we had ever been as far as we didn't feel like, like we stuck out, like the most of any place I've ever been. We've been to Russia and Haiti and Belize and Peru, and I've been a few different places, and I never felt more uncomfortable than Turkey because you're not wearing the things that they're wearing. The women all have their face covered. It's just like everybody knows you're different, right? And so, like, I kind of, we already kind of felt uncomfortable, and now we're in this crowd of thousands upon thousands of people, and they're all, like, screaming and crying and mourning, and then our tour guide's like, we have to walk through the Blue Mosque to get to the Hagia Sophia, and I was like, we're walking through a funeral? Like, this seems like not a good idea, and he's like, no, 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 it's no big deal. I was like, it's a really big deal, so anyway, we did it, and we're walking through, and all, like, thousands, I can't even describe to you how big this place was, Thousands of Muslims are on their prayer rugs, just, I want to say freaking out, even though that's probably, like, I don't mean to be derogatory, but just because I didn't understand the language and, like, what they were saying, it just, it looked like complete chaos. Everybody's, and the loudspeakers are just blaring, and I'm just, like, the most on edge I've ever been. And I didn't know what was happening, but I knew it was a really big deal to them. Right? So we ended up getting to the Hagia Sophia and nobody died and it was okay. But I just remember being like, I don't know what's going on, but this is a really big deal. I don't speak the language, but they are, this is a huge deal. And this is what's happening in this land of Canaan. The Canaanites are looking at the Egyptians, they're going, this is a big deal. This guy is really important. I don't know what happened or how he died or what he did. This is a really big deal. This is a really important guy. And the interesting thing about it is Jacob was a very important and significant figure in history, but not in the way that you think. Think about it. Jacob didn't win any wars. Jacob didn't lead a nation. Jacob was not wealthy or powerful. He didn't have some great scientific discovery. He didn't invent anything. He wasn't some like legendary figure in humanity. The only thing that was special about Jacob, we've just spent 23 chapters talking about his life and his family's life. The only thing that was special about Jacob is that God made him a promise and he lived his life believing it. That's it. Think about that. Like, God said, this is me. This is how I feel about you. And Jacob just lived his life believing it. That was it. God made him a promise, and Jacob believed it. And Jacob just believed what God said and lived his life as if it were true. And that's what made him significant. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't exceptional in any sort of way. He was just a guy who believed in God and his life reflected that. And we see him, even the end of his life, believing and celebrating the goodness of God. Now, it sounds very simple, right? But it's very powerful. Like, and, and sometimes as a pastor, I feel like I have the need to remind you guys, like this Christian life thing is not complicated. 
Like, it's not complicated. Sometimes it's difficult, but it's not complicated. It's very simple, right? Just believe the things that God has said. Live your life as if they are true. Sometimes, like, we need to reset and be like, hey, this is not complicated. This is, there's not a million different steps. We don't have to remember a hundred different things. We don't have to do the rigmarole and up, right, down, left, whatever. You know, like, there's not all these things that we got to walk through. We just need to know who God is as his word reveals him and then live our lives as if we believe it. Like, sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes it's hard, but don't mistake hard for complicated. It's not complicated. It is sometimes hard or difficult, right? Sometimes there's choices you have to make that you don't feel like making, but that's not complicated. It's just, this is what my life would look like if I actually believed in God. So I'm going to do it. And that is what made Jacob one of these people who is passed down and revered from generation to generation to generation. He's just a guy who believed in God. He's just a guy who saw the goodness of God over and over as he lived his life by faith. And now look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now remember the story, right? When Joseph was 17, he was his dad's favorite son. And so his other brothers, his other 10 brothers at the time, his youngest brother hadn't been born yet. His other 10 brothers hated him. They hated him with all their heart. And so when he came out to visit them while they were tending the sheep, they said, you know what? We're tired of this guy. Let's kill him, which is a lot of hatred to kill your brother, right? And some of you have little brothers and you're like, it's not that much hatred. Yeah, it is, right? You say that, but you don't want to actually kill him. So they actually wanted to kill their youngest brother. And then they ended up like, hey, if we kill him, we won't make any money. But they ended up seeing some slave traders going by. So like, let's sell him. We'll get something out of this and he'll be out of our lives. Two birds with one stone. So they did. They sold him into slavery. So they're like, now that dad's dead, they're like, uh, maybe he'll hate us for that. You think? Right? That's a pretty terrible thing. So continue on, verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph's brothers are worried. Right? They're worried that he's going to be mad. They're worried that the only reason he didn't kill them beforehand is because dad was still alive and he knew it would make dad upset if he killed all his brothers. So maybe he was just you know, being nice and pretending to be nice until dad died. Now he was going to lay the hammer or something like that. And so they, they come up with this plan and they send him a message. And they're like, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you, Joseph, that before dad died, his last dying wish was that you would forgive us. Right? And Joseph, obviously knowing that this is a lie, breaks down in tears. It says he wept. He hears this lie that his brothers come up with, and he sees the fear, and he sees the guilt that they're dealing with, and he sees the shame, and he sees the lie. 
And it breaks his heart that they still don't believe in him. They still don't believe that God has changed his heart. They still don't believe that he has forgiven them. And so Joseph begins to weep. And it's probably because he just knows his brothers are continuing to lie, that their character hasn't changed this much. But Joseph says this incredible thing in verse 19. He says, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good that many people would be kept alive. And this is one of the famous verses of your Bible. Like if you're like going through like a Christian bookstore and you were like looking at like coffee mugs and cards and things like that, this is one of those that would be on an apron or something, right? Like the inspirational, like people throughout generations have looked at this verse and gone, yes, there is like some power and some encouragement and some strength when you get the idea that what other people meant for evil, God could actually use for good. But in this very specific context of Joseph dealing with his brothers, I do want to point out that Joseph looks at his brothers and he sees guilt and he sees fear and he sees in response to those two things, them coming up with lies and deception and it breaks his heart. And it's interesting because Joseph is like looking at his brothers and he's saying this situation that we've gone through, this you wanting to hurt me, God turned it around and used it and meant like prepared it for good. And where you think you should be fearful and scared and lie, you should actually be rejoicing because God meant it for good. You see that? Like his brothers looked at this situation and they felt guilt and they felt fear and they came up with lies. And Joseph says, no, 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 you're you're looking at this situation wrong. You're looking at this situation and seeing something you should be scared of when you should look at this situation and have reason for hope. Like this is exactly what God has been doing from the very beginning. People read the situation and and, and what God is doing in the world and they feel guilt and fear and they, they come up with justification in their hearts or they come up with lies in their hearts. And the situation is actually the exact opposite. It's a reason for hope. It's a reason for faith. It's a reason to rejoice in the truth. You know, many people see church as this exact same situation, right? You should read your Bible. Why? I already feel bad enough. You should come to church. Why? So you could tell me all the bad things. Right? They see church or the Bible or the things of God as a reason for guilt and fear and shame. And it was actually a message intended for hope. It was actually a message intended to give you a, something to look forward to. To erase your past and give you a future. Right? The people of God were intended, always intended, even as far back as the book of Genesis, which is the first book in your Bible, to be ambassadors for hope, to be the embodiment of hope, to look at a world that is feeling guilt and shame and coming up with lies and deception to cover it up and say, no, 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 no. Like, this is not a cause for fear. Like you coming into the presence of God is not a cause for guilt. It's a cause for understanding that he desires to give you hope. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that resonates in our heart, right? We all hear that and we want to say amen. But let's drill down for one second. We go out of that immediate context and start to look at our lives Like, we all want to go, God meant it for good, amen. So whatever you're going through, God meant it for good. Well, what did it mean that God meant it for good for Joseph? 
Because remember the story? It took 22 years for Joseph to figure out what the heck God was doing. 22 years! That's a long time to leave your faithful servant in the dark on what you're accomplishing. Right? 22 years that he was sold and hated by his brothers, and then he was in the house of Potiphar, and then he was wrongfully accused, and then he was wrongfully imprisoned. Then he was two more years in prison after he should have been let out. Like, there was over and over and over these situations. I'm sure a lot of sleepless nights where Joseph was going, God, what are you doing? And yet God was meaning all of these things for good. So sometimes we, we think God meant it for good, and we think, oh, well, that means it'll be quick. That means it'll be easy. That means it'll be comfortable. That means I'll understand it the whole way through. That, that's actually not what it means. God meaning something for good could, could very possibly mean that it takes 22 years. And think about this. God meaning something for good means it's very possible that the absolute worst thing that has ever taken place in your life could be used by God for good. And some of you like that, you're like, no, nope, nope, that, not possible. That thing was awful. That thing was terrible. I will never get over that. That's never going to be, like, it's ne- that's not happening, Jared. Like, you're not going to, you know, I- encourage me out of this. Like, you're not going to Christian Bible verse me out of knowing that that terrible thing that happened to me is always going to be terrible. Think about Joseph. Think about his life. He was hated so much by his brothers that they wanted to kill him, sold him into slavery. And 22 years later, 22 years after the fact, God works in his life enough to where it's like, you know what? You know what? That, yeah, it wasn't comfortable. Yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah, it never should have happened. Yeah, it was sinful and wrong on my brother's behalf. But God used it for good. God meant it for good. God is not limited by your terrible experiences. I think sometimes we think that. Like we go through really hard, terrible things, and we're like, nah, God could never redeem that. God could never reconcile that. God could never actually use that for good. And yet, in the story of Joseph, we see it's entirely possible that the worst experience of your life could work out for good. It just might take 22 years or even longer to accomplish. But God's not limited by your understanding of what is good and what is bad. And here's where we get to this big question of the book of Genesis. Right? I said we'd talk about this at the beginning. Why did we need 23 chapters of this story? Why did God spend almost half of his book on one guy and his 12 sons? I mean, there's some really great characters in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham. Why did Jacob and his 12 sons get almost half of the thing? Like, that's a lot. Why was this picture, this scenario, this situation so important to God that you would clearly see it and understand it? Well, the question's pretty natural. At the end of the book, we end up with these 12 men who are the leaders of the 12 tribes of who God calls his people. So these are the people of God on the earth. At this point in history, these are God's people on the earth. And what kind of people are these people? They're sinners. All of them, right? 
murderous, brother-hating, lying, guilt-feeling sinners. And what does the Bible say about them? That God meant it for good to save them. You see that? Because sometimes we talk about the story of Joseph, and we're like, Joseph was awesome. Joseph went through hard things, and he persevered, and he, he honored the Lord, and God gave him dreams. And then when Potiphar's wife came to tempt him, he ran away. We're like, you should be like Joseph. But don't forget that the story is about God saving sinners. Don't forget that the story is about God using Joseph's life to save the ten awful brothers. They're not perfect. But God, in his grace, takes 23 chapters on this family to show us the picture of him saving sinners. And not only him saving sinners, but him using every means possible. He sends a famine Right? He manipulates like weather patterns to accomplish this. He sends dreams in certain scenarios. He puts people in prison. He uses the Egyptian prison system to accomplish his goals. Like he, he reorchestrates the political structure of the whole nation of Egypt, which is the most powerful nation of the world at the time. Like he puts people in power and takes people out of power. And like he does all of this stuff to save sinners. That, as Joseph said, verse 19 and 20, that many people would be saved. That many people would be kept alive. And he does it all, not to save the best people, not to save the ones that qualify for it, not to save the ones who deserve it, but to save sinners. God means to save sinners. And so we have this big picture at the end of the book of Genesis. That this group of people whom God calls his own, his people come into being and are sustained by his miraculous, mighty hand. That's the picture. That's how this book closes. This, is, this, is, this statement of Joseph, like if we've watched this last 23 chapters of this family, we see that the people of God came to be and are sustained and saved from death and are kept alive by the miraculous, mighty hand of God. And that's where the book ends. The people who God chose to be his, he established and rescued by his grace and by miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And you need to know this because for the rest of history, this will be the only way God operates. Okay? Because some people think there's other ways that God, oh, we could get to God this way, or we can get to God that way, or maybe God will use this, or maybe God will do this. No, 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 there's only one way that God operates. And that's why he spent 23 chapters so that you would get the picture. There's one way that the people of God come into existence, and there's one way that the people of God are sustained. It's by his miraculous hand. And if they're not sustained by the miraculous hand of God's grace, then they're not sustained at all. And if they're not established by the miraculous hand of God's grace, they're not established at all. The people of God will never come into being any other way, and they will never be sustained any other way. And I say this because lots of people think church is about recognizing, oh yeah, I need it, I should have some God in my life, and then if I come to church and I try to be a good person, that will sustain me. False! Nobody gets sustained any other way than by the miracle of God's grace. 
That's the only way God will ever operate for the rest of history. For the rest of time, the only way anyone ever becomes a child of God is by the miraculous power of the Almighty Creator. And for the rest of time, the only way anyone ever continues in the grace of God as his child is by his mighty hand. It's either that you know God because of his miraculous power or you don't know him at all. And you have hope because of his amazing grace or there is no hope. There's not another way. Let me say it again. The people of God always have been and always will be established and sustained by the miraculous grace of our God. There's just no other way. Remember at the beginning of this message, we said that God does things the way that he does them to teach us something about himself. God works in and through this family to teach us something about himself. And that never ceased to be true. And here's God spends 23 chapters saving this family. So you know that either God saves people or they don't get saved. God spends 23 chapters so that you know either God gives you hope or there is no hope. Either God makes a way or there is no way. Either God does a miracle or nobody gets saved. And 2,000 years later, not one thing changed. As Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and by the mighty, miraculous hand of our God was raised again on the third day that you might be saved. That's your only hope. Just like at the end of Genesis, God meant this awful thing to actually be used for good so that many people might be saved. 2,000 years later, Jesus died on the cross and the miraculous hand of God raised him from the dead and God meant that awful event so that many people would be saved, that many people would be kept alive, that you would know this message here today, that your only hope is the grace and the miracle of our God. And that's why God spends 23 chapters on this. That's why this continued, like, that's why right up front, God spends so much time telling this story because it never ceases to be true that God saves people or they don't get saved. Christians here and now, just like the family of Jacob in Genesis 50, are established and sustained by his grace and his grace alone. That's it. That's it. And so when you hear Jake, Joseph say that, and he says, hey, you meant it for evil, but, but God meant it for good that many people might be saved. You can internalize that and go, yeah, there's stuff that happens in my life that I don't understand, and maybe God is going to mean it for good later on. I just keep holding on. But you also know that the only, only, only reason that that makes any sense to you at all, the only reason that you have any hope at all is because our miraculous God has supernaturally given you grace and the opportunity to be saved. That's it. That's it. And God wanted you to know that right up front as this book closes. So let's finish the last couple verses here. It says, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. 
and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And Joseph ends his life just like his father Jacob ended his life at the beginning of the chapter, just believing what God said. So simple, right? He's spent the last 80 years of his life in Egypt. And he says, hey, don't forget, God's not going to leave us here. I believe what God said. He's going to take us back to the promised land. Don't forget, guys, just like my dad told me not to forget. God's, God's not done here. He's doing something. We believe what he said, and we'll live our lives accordingly. Let's go ahead and finish. Stephen, you can come up. We'll sing this last worship song. Father, I thank you for your word and the encouragement that it gives us. I pray that we would be a people who understand just how miraculous and powerful and mighty you are, how good you've been to us, and where our hope lies, Lord. If we are mistakenly thinking our hope is in our good works or our righteous hearts or the stock market or politics or whatever else it is that people in this world place their hope in, Lord. I pray that there would be that sharp rebuke and correction in our heart. Not because you want us to feel bad, Lord, but because you want to give us hope. And maybe there's some who came in this morning and they thought this would be a reason or an occasion for fear or guilt or judgment. And I pray that your spirit will work in hearts and just encourage us, Lord, that this is not a reason for fear. But this is a reason for hope. This is a reason for faith. This is a reason for rejoicing. Because you have saved many people. And we thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.